Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message titled, Dependent on the Holy Spirit. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Let's start with that first part. The heart of man or a woman plans his or her ways. If we're living our lives in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, no doubt. We're planning our ways in wisdom, looking for things that glorify God. And we might find that a great many of the things that we plan simply go forward as we plan. You know, we plan to buy a house and then we do so. We plan a career and manage to get that career that we're planning for. We make a note to share the gospel with a work colleague and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us and then the opportunity opens up and we're faithful. Or perhaps we have a skill that's needed on short-term missions on an opportunity that's given through our local church. And we pray about it and we sense the Holy Spirit leading us and then we go ahead. It's amazing the opportunities we have through planning. There are thousands of ways in the living out of the life that's faithful to Christ that is in accordance to our plans. But then there are other times when the best laid plans are interrupted. I've heard two humorous sayings about this. And the first is that you can hear divine laughter whenever you tell God your plans. And the second, it's a little more secular. It's this is what happens. Life happens while we're making other plans. Every once in a while, I do a little exercise. I think about all the things that I once planned and then I compare them to what's actually transpired. And it really is amazing to me how the leading of God has taken me to places I would never have imagined or planned. In fact, the gospel going out to the whole world didn't take place in the way which faithful Christians planned it should be. I mean, first of all, it was persecution in Jerusalem that forced the apostles out. And then Peter had a vision in which apart from his plans, he was led to the city of Caesarea, the place where the Romans were headquartered in Israel. There he, for the first time in his life, entered the home of a Gentile, not just any Gentile either, a Roman centurion. And suddenly the gospel broke its Jewish boundaries. And that was, if you pardon the expression, the genie that would never go back into the bottle. Peter never planned that. See, I wanna say that the great leaps forward in terms of gospel proclamation happened because even though people were planning rationally and in a godly manner, the Holy Spirit intervened and everything changed. I think it's fair to say that the events described in Acts 16 really did change the world and at the very least, they changed the Western world. Perhaps Paul, the great missionary, was thinking about taking the gospel into the heart of the Roman Empire and bringing it all the way to, into Caesar's household, but perhaps not. See, it seems to me such a plan of making faith in Christ available in the widest manner possible to the power centers of the world was more than he had imagined. At any rate, let's begin by reading today's text, which is Acts 16, 6 to 10. And they went through the region of Perga and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
We have to remember what's transpired. I mean, first of all, the missionary team of Paul includes three people. It's Paul, and then his new partner, Silas, and then the new team member, Timothy. Paul has been concerned to revisit the churches that he and Barnabas had established earlier. How are those churches doing? Are they standing strong? That's a very good question, especially because of the persecution. And so Paul's plans are solid. Care about the people who had been won to Christ. Be a pastor to them. Be a shepherd. Someone who's concerned for their souls, for the progress of the gospel. So at this stage, it didn't seem that he had made any plans beyond that. Or had he? I mean, Luke doesn't tell us. Perhaps when, you know, they were in the cities of Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, they had constant conversations hearing about the possibilities of taking the gospel where it hadn't been before. However it came to be, the three men decide they're going to journey north. Luke says they went through the regions of Perga and Galatia. It's quite likely that when in Pisidian Antioch, they went north and east. And then Paul tells us why. They had come to the Asian region of Mycenae, and they planned to go further north to the province of Bithynia. And Luke doesn't tell us exactly which cities they had in mind, but we do know there were a number of populous cities there. Nicaea was there. So was Byzantium. It seems to me that targeting the major populations of that region made very good sense. And furthermore, as we know from Christian history, that area later became a stronghold for the Christian faith, where in the future, a great many significant Christian councils would be held. And so whatever was the guiding of Paul at this process, one thing seems clear. Paul felt this region was wide open for the gospel, and he was right. It was. But then comes this curious phrase. Luke says the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. I say it's a curious phrase because that phrase is found in only one other place in the New Testament. However, there's no doubt that Luke's referring to the Holy Spirit. And by calling him the Spirit of Jesus, Luke's letting us know that the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to draw men and women to Christ. And so you'd have to think Paul and his team should go to the region that's very open to the faith. Has not the Holy Spirit been preparing that population up north there for the gospel? Yeah, he had been, and it appears they should go. But the Holy Spirit won't allow them. And reading that gives us the impression that Paul and Silas and Timothy were very aware of the activity of the Holy Spirit in directing their steps. You know, I have to say that they were always aware that their plans were being reshaped by the intervention of the Spirit. And there's a lesson here for us, isn't there? Be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance. There are many times in our lives when we plan something, but then we hear the prompting of the Spirit say, not that. And at the outset, sometimes it doesn't make sense. Now, we don't know how Paul and his team became convinced that the Spirit was closing the door. I mean, did something happen? I mean, did one of them have a word of prophecy? Or was there merely a strong inclination as a result of their prayer lives that led them to believe that the Holy Spirit was saying, don't you go there? But they don't. And so they go west. And at first, it's not well populated. And you have to wonder what they're doing there. But eventually, they would make their way to the port city of Troas, right on the Adriatic Sea, where the Mediterranean Sea divides the coast of Turkey and Greece. Now, we don't hear Paul doing any missionary work there, and I, I don't assume that they were there very long. I mean, perhaps it was on the first night when they fell asleep that Paul had the vision. A man of Macedonia had appeared to him. You know, I know that many people reading this now might not understand the significance of this vision. I mean, Macedonia in our reading is just another place. 
But Macedonia, if you think about it in our terms, it's northern Greece. That is, it's the place where Asia ends. It's where Europe begins. Europe, one of the most pagan places on earth, but also the power center of the earth. This is where the Greeks spread their culture and language to the ends of the earth. And further on, we find Rome itself. Greece was the land that gave the world her gods and goddesses, deities that the Roman Empire simply adopted. Greece was the home of democracy, the advancement in politics. Greece was the home of the greatest philosophers the world had known. And it was the Greeks from Macedonia had been the place where Philip of Macedon had come from as well as his famous son, Alexander the Great, the man who had ended Middle Eastern power and had literally conquered the world, literally redrawn the maps of the world. But more than that, Alexander had a vision to reach the whole world. The vision of a man of Macedonia stunned Paul. Is this of God? Is this why the Holy Spirit had said, don't go to Bithynia? And in his dream, Paul sees a Macedonian man standing before him and he's urging him, Come over to Macedonia. Help us. Help us. Help how? But for Paul, the meaning must have been clear. Macedonia and beyond, the the realm of the Europeans, they were lost in darkness. Their religions and their customs had not brought them to God. When the final day of judgment would eventually arrive, they had no God. They had no hope in this world. They were lost. And there stood a Macedonian man standing before him, urging him, Don't forget about us. We're a people with no forgiveness of sins. We have no hope of eternal life. Help us. And Paul awoke. I have to imagine the meeting that followed. Paul explaining the dream he had last night to Silas, to Timothy. Was this dream too large for them to do? Is it really possible to take the message of the gospel to one of the greatest places of the world? Would anyone listen there? Would anyone care? And even if they did care, how are they going to do it? But I notice Paul and his team don't attempt to answer those questions. They have all now come to the same conclusion. God has called him to go to Macedonia. And if that's what God has said, he would hear his servants ready to obey. All that was now left is to go down to the harbor at Troas, find a ship, cross the Adriatic, and go to Europe. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations, it's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, its broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine. This year, we're excited to share that Truth and Life will have a unique discipleship focus. Each issue will highlight a different marker of discipleship, We trust that each of the elements of discipleship explored this year will help lay a foundation of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission of providing trustworthy Bible teaching. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, visit us at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. What do you do when your plans suddenly change? You know, some of us are stunned and others are grieved and still others are excited. But if we're open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, 
We're going to revel in the fact that the Holy Spirit knows so much more than we do and that his plans are so much greater than ours and we're going to rejoice. And we have to imagine Paul, Silas, and Timothy finding a vessel that would sail to the coast of Macedonia. We know from 2 Corinthians that that Paul never bought a first-class ticket. He always took the cheapest ticket he could find. Luke doesn't tell us what kind of accommodations they found, but they did. And with that, they set sail on a voyage that would change the world. Up to that moment, no European had heard the name Jesus or knew of his saving purposes. That was going to change. Acts 16, 11 to 12. So setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Now, before going on, would you notice the word we in verse 11? So setting sail from Troas, we made a voyage. Suddenly, Luke, the author of Acts, is indicating that at this time, he's joined the missionary journey. He's no longer writing as a historian. He's now writing as an eyewitness. In case you're wondering, Samothrace is a small island in the Adriatic between Turkey and Greece, and Troas is a coastal town. And we have to imagine that since Paul says that they had sailed to Neapolis the following day, that it was a two-day journey in which they would sail only during daytime. And so they would have harbored on the island, and when morning broke, they would have felt it safe to sail again. And since the voyage was made in just two days, we have to assume the winds were favorable, and it was a non-eventful trip as Greece was awaiting the arrival of the gospel. Luke says they arrived in the port city of Neapolis. Today, that city is called Kavala. And I must say, having been there, it's at least the way it appears today, it's very picturesque. It's a beautiful town. I don't know anything about how it appeared in Paul's time. He didn't care. He wasn't a vacationer. Again, we must believe that the Holy Spirit was urging them beyond Neapolis to their destination. It's a very famous Roman road that went out from the port city. It was called the Ignatian Way, and there, as to this day, there are still remnants of that road found. Within hours of walking, they'd have been able to see the city of Philippi. It's a very large city. It's a historic city. It's the birthplace of Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. And yes, boys and girls, that's why it was named Philippi. But it was also the city that stood at the center of an important moment in history. It was there at that city that Mark Antony had defeated Brutus and Cassius. And you're going to remember from your history lessons that those two men were the ones that had assassinated Julius Caesar. And after that, this city was a popular city for Roman military veterans to retire, settle down, make a life for themselves. And because of all of that, this city was on the radar for the government of Rome. They made Philippi a Roman colony so that all the citizens of Philippi were also Roman citizens. The place was governed by Roman laws. It was considered an outpost of Rome. Luke simply refers to the city as a leading city in Macedonia, but now you know why. And as an aside, if you visit the city today, it is in fact a vast archeological site. At any rate, let's keep reading. Remember the team is now remaining in this city for some days and Acts 16 verse 13 says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. I stop here because it's an important sentence. Paul waits to begin his ministry until the Sabbath, and that wouldn't surprise us because everywhere Paul went, he would look for a Jewish synagogue, and there he would be given an opportunity to speak. 
But in Jewish law, there needed to be at least 10 Jewish males or heads of their families before you could establish a synagogue. And that would mean that Philippi probably didn't have any Jews and they had little knowledge of the God of Abraham. The city was overwhelmingly Greek, but also Roman. The citizens would have prided themselves with Roman clothing as well as adopting Roman customs. They were, in their words, an outpost of Rome. But there's a river on the outside of the city. And here, outside the city limits, our missionaries expect to encounter a few people who would be faithful to the God of Israel. So the Romans tolerated Jewish practices, but not so much that they would have allowed these women to find a place of worship within the city. I mean, out of sight, out of mind, I suppose. Nonetheless, Paul and his team encounter a group of women. Where are the men? Well, somewhere around the time of AD 49, the emperor Claudius had banished Jews from Rome. And it might be that since Philippi was an outpost of Rome, the Philippians had simply followed suit. So then were these women actually Jews? And I I think not. They would have been God-fearers, Gentiles like Cornelius, the centurion in Caesarea, who loved the God of Israel, but had never become full converts. And that's Paul's starting place. He and his team, now a team of four, himself, Silas, Timothy, Luke, join the women in prayer. They sit down and they talk. Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, several things. First, notice that she's originally from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira is a city that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's one of the seven churches of Asia to which Jesus had a message. That is, sometime after this, Thyatira would have heard the gospel and would have established a church. Now, we don't know. I mean, did Lydia have contacts there? And did she end up using her influence to reach some of the people in that city, the city that had been original home? Well, of course, we don't know. But we do know that many people in the first century heard the gospel from friends and family and business contacts and such. So much for us to learn in this. Second, notice that Lydia is a seller of purple goods, and that's her business. Now, in our day, we tend not to understand how important that was. We're able to color fabric for clothing, and it's very inexpensive. But in the ancient world, that wasn't so. Purple was a dye. It was obtained from mollusks, and it would take 8,000 of them to produce one gram of purple dye. And that means that a seller of purple goods sold those goods only to the rich and famous. That would also mean that she was probably quite rich and that she was the class of wealthy merchants. She would have had a large house in which her business was done. She'd have had a great many contacts all over the world, as well as business interests around the Roman world. Now, third, notice what Luke also tells us. She's paying attention to everything that Paul is saying. Yeah, she was, but why is she doing that? And Luke now gives us a little bit of theology about conversion. Notice he says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. Jesus said that about the Holy Spirit. You know, in John 16, verse 8, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convict the world regarding sin, yes, our own sin, regarding righteousness, the righteousness that is required of us, and regarding judgment. And that's why she paid attention. The Lord was opening her heart. Don't you know that if the Lord did not open a heart, not one human being would be saved? And that reminds us, doesn't it? Salvation isn't a human work. It's a divine work. Not only did the Father send the Son, 
But the Father also sent the Spirit, for without the Spirit, we would not be drawn to the Son. And here again, we see the work of the Spirit. I wonder if years later, Lydia wondered about this. She didn't know Jesus, but a man named Paul on the other side of the Adriatic Sea was not permitted to go where he was planning to go. The Holy Spirit had blocked him. Then he had a vision of a man of Macedonia, and now here he was at her little gathering beside the river on the Sabbath day, and the Holy Spirit was opening her heart wide. I don't think Lydia ever described her conversion the way we do today. You know, I made a decision to give myself to Christ. No, no, she didn't know of Christ until the Holy Spirit sent that man to her and until the Holy Spirit opened her heart. Now, Acts 16, 15. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Please notice the wording. She's baptized and baptism demonstrates she stands for Christ. And not only is she baptized, her household is, which would be family, servants, business, contacts. She's instantly ensuring that everyone she knows will know plenty about Christ. And for the first time, Europe has a Christian church. And fascinatingly enough, the only one that planned that was the Holy Spirit. See, isn't it time that we all become more open to the plans of the Spirit? Perhaps we all need to take this matter to heart. Let's all determine to ask the Holy Spirit where he's leading us. And let's remember Proverbs 16, verse 9, shall we? The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Thanks, John. You know, I I think it's fair to say that most of us should take the opportunity to be more sensitive to the leading or correction of the Spirit but also to intentionally make ourselves available to the Spirit's moving or direction in our lives? Yeah, I, you know, we need to come to terms with the fact that everyone who knows Christ truly, I mean, the Holy Spirit lives within us. He has given us a new heart. We have regeneration. And so on the basis of that, we are also aware of the Spirit's promptings. I mean, when we sin, the Holy Spirit is grieved and he causes grief in us. That's just one example But there are numerous examples where the Holy Spirit is prompting us to do something. Maybe it's to talk to someone. Uh, Maybe it's to accept a challenge in our life that we've never done before. We need to listen very carefully to the leading of the Spirit. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. We live in a fallen world. We're called to live God-honoring, Bible-based lives, but society would seem opposed. How are we to illuminate and influence a culture that rejects the truths of Scripture? Well, Back to the Bible Canada has a new resource to help us do just that. 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change. It's a new booklet that presents 10 impactful ways we can affect and influence the world around us. Each chapter also contains probing questions to reflect upon and suggestions as to how each of us might integrate these essentials into our daily lives and relationships. Derived from Dr. John Neufeld's audio series and alternative lifestyle, this is a resource designed to engage the reader to make a difference. Request your free copy today 
by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.